Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Aaron Rothstein, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a fellow in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He also hosts the podcast, Searching for Medicine's Soul. He uh, visited Israel in January on an academic solidarity mission, which we'll talk about. And uh, Dr. Rothstein, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So you went to Israel uh, in January on this academic solidarity mission. For those of us who are uninitiated, what is that? Sure. It was... um it sort of happened after a lot of the events on university campuses uh, in kind of late fall um, where there were protests against Israel, a lot of um, academics and some even university presidents um, who seemed to be unwilling to um, take a stand for Israel. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of Israeli academics and um, Israelis, frankly, felt a bit isolated uh, because of this. And so as a, show of our support, um, a group of faculty, and this is separate from the, the university itself, although we were all faculty at the university, got together and said, we, um, you know, we need to go and, and show our support for our colleagues overseas. And, um, and during the course of your time there, uh, what was the conversation like? Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a very intense trip. Um, we met with, uh, academics at Tel Aviv University, uh, Hebrew University, um, Ben-Gurion University, uh, and we saw some of the sites of the, the massacres of October 7th. Uh, and, and our conversations with our you know, overseas colleagues kind of um, were, were upsetting. Uh, many of them pointed out that there seemed to be fewer invitations to collaborate on research projects, fewer invitations to kind of lecture abroad, there was a fear of um, fewer invitations to have some of Israeli graduate students study abroad as postdocs, um, you know, have, having journals kind of turn down articles yeah. uh, that submitted by Israeli academics. So, you know, a, a bit of a, what I call in, in um, a recent piece I wrote for a public discourse, a covert academic boycott. Yeah. And, and this uh, promotion in academia requires... Uh, you know, letters of recommendation from faculty members uh, at other institutions who don't know the applicant personally but know of his or her work. Um, it requires, uh, you know, having opportunity uh, to cooperate with researchers all over the world. So this uh, this covert uh, uh, boycott uh of Israeli scholarship uh, is is dangerous. I mean, it 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 involves losing um, promotion in careers. Correct. It is anti-intellectual in my mind. Yeah. Uh, and it stymies the careers of uh, young Israeli academics. And you know, who knows what kind of discoveries they'll make or advancements they'll make in their various fields, um, but for this kind of uh, discrimination. Um, so how concrete were the instances of discrimination that you came across? The, the concreteness is difficult to tell. Um, 
because this these kinds of invitations can you know wax and wane over time sure and so i think i think we will all probably have a much better sense of things over the coming year but already um many higher ups in universities have pointed out that um that there are quantitative metrics that show uh changes so the chances of young Israeli academics being accepted to institutions internationally for a postdoc program have declined by a double-digit percentage. Now, that's like that's very unusual. So, uh, so there are certainly signs that what is covert or being unsaid is having consequences. Um, you write that in November, 939 Nordic researchers and academic staff called for a boycott of Israeli academic institutions. Uh, with exceptions made only for individual Israeli scholars who explicitly condemned the war in Gaza. Uh, that, that's, that is awfully blatant. I totally agree. I, I, so I think this is both covert and overt. And the, the explicit stuff, which is the, the event that you just mentioned, that is, I mean, it's tale as old as time uh, in Israeli academia. This has been going on throughout the 2000s. Um, you know, it seems whenever there is conflict uh, in the Middle East that involves Israel, there is always a push by European or American um, academics to explicitly refuse to work with, with Israelis. Uh, and again, I think this is anti-intellectual, it's anti-Semitic, um, it is discriminating against a group of scholars based on their nationality or their, even their political opinions, which is um, uh, a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, there's certainly on college campuses in the United States, uh, there's a lot of disgraceful behavior uh, following uh, the Israeli Defense Force's response to the uh, massacre of October 6th. And... Um, and we didn't see a whole lot of uh, uh, courage on the part of uh, university and college presidents uh, standing in the gap here. How here we have how politically left? Uh, this is a big question. I know there are lots of ways of getting at this, but how politically left is American American academia? So that is a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's—I I don't think it's what it seems, uh, because I think there are a lot of people who see what's going on and don't agree with it. it it's just that the loudest, loudest voices seem to have the most uh, control yeah. or seem to get the most attention. And so I, you know, while I'm. Um, disheartened by everything that's been going on. I, I'm also encouraged, again, by the fact that, uh, that here at Penn, um, this group of academics got together to, to go to Israel, you know. Um, that, that's a, a good thing. Yeah, I, that, yeah, indeed. That took some effort, and it took a willingness to basically uh, be counted. Uh, I think that that's wonderful. Um, you mentioned uh, in 2009, during a previous war in Gaza, a group of American professors called for an academic boycott of Israel. How often do these things come up? 
they come up regularly, whether there's conflict or even whether there's not, actually. I, there's, um, uh, this past summer, there was a, um, uh, a group uh, called the American Anthropological Association mm-hmm. uh, that argued that the Israeli state operates an apartheid regime from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, which, for those who don't, uh, aren't totally familiar with the ge- geography, is basically the entire state of Israel. Right, right. Uh, so, you, you know, know it, it, uh, it's, it's baffling, but this stuff comes up um, on the regular, unfortunately. I, I mean, it doesn't take... It doesn't take a lot of work to read the original Hamas charter or the revision and to know that Hamas's intention uh, is not peaceful coexistence, but it is the elimination of the state of Israel. Um, Why is it so difficult for people to just acknowledge that? Boy, that is a... (laughs) That is a loaded question, and I think, I think there is a lot of groundwork that has been laid for this kind of perspective to take root and flourish. Um, and I, I think some of it involves the, um, like the, the movement of postmodernism that insisted that you know, there wasn't really uh, a truth, like we, truth just didn't exist, there's mm-hmm. no objective truth, and that essentially it was oppressor versus oppressed yeah, and the oppressed are always in the right. And somehow the Jewish people became the oppressors in this narrative, in this postmodernist narrative. Um, And I think, you know, usually the job of the academic or the intellectual is to say, things are a bit more complicated than that. (laughs) Right. And there's, and there's nuance here. Yeah. And, but there are times when it is, very clear what is right and what is wrong. And postmodernism has totally distorted our ability to see right and wrong. Uh, and I think that's what's going on here. It's a bit of a sloppy way of explaining it. But so I, I do think that's what's happening. So having lost the confidence that anyone can actually establish right from wrong or truth from falsehood, they've simply slid into the council under the council of despair where now it is um the person who has the power um is the one who is the oppressor and therefore by definition is somebody that must be uh uh resisted and the oppressed are always the ones who deserve uh support and questions of history questions of um uh, political philosophy uh, are meaningless. The only thing that counts is this person is labeled oppressed and this person is labeled oppressor. That covers good and evil, and it covers truth and falsity. Um, and the, the the odd thing is that with that kind of mindset, what ends up happening is the most powerful people end up prevailing anyways. It's It's disgraceful. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think that's right. So when I when I when I when I hear this kind of thing, it is it, it is terribly frustrating um, to, to again think that I mean it was, the Hamas 
people treat the conflict between um, Israel and Hamas as though it's it's just a, a neighborly dispute. So I. You know, I have a dispute with my neighbor. Um, We have a dispute over where the fence ought to be placed. Um, And what we'll have to do is we'll have to argue it out. We'll have to call in outsiders. But that isn't the nature of the relationship between Hamas and Israel. Hamas doesn't come as a neighbor seeking to settle a dispute. They're the neighbor who says, you don't deserve to exist at all. And I won't be satisfied until you're abolished. That's how I see it. And um, thank you for the time, and I hope we can talk about this in the future. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thanks for having me.